0: Episode 65. Do childhood vaccines save lives or cost them? Back in April 2022, I wrote two articles about the impact that the COVID-19 vaccine debacle has had on the confidence of the general public and the medical profession in vaccines in general. In the first of those articles, called Why You Need to Stop Saying I'm Not an Anti-Vaxxer Bart, I mentioned the 8.93% decline in Florida's infant mortality rate that coincided with a marked drop in the percentage of children who were fully compliant with the CDC-recommended childhood vaccination schedule. Specifically, there was a 14.1 percentage point drop in children aged 24 to 35 months in that state who were up to date with their shots from 93.4% in 2020 to 79.3% in 2021 and a 5.8 percentage drop in 1 to 2 year olds from 73% in 2020 to 67.2% in 2021. Huh... But aren't vaccines supposed to reduce the number of infant deaths by protecting tiny babies with immature immune systems against dangerous infectious diseases? Well, that's the theory. As I mentioned in that previous article, according to John and Sonia McKinley's exhaustive analysis of U.S. data, medical interventions for infectious diseases, including vaccines, antibiotics and diphtheria toxoid, accounted for a measly 3.5% of the steep reduction in total mortality that occurred between 1900 and 1973 in that country. Both of that reduction, by the way, was due to the dramatic decline in deaths from infectious disease. The vast bulk of the decline in infectious disease mortality was directly attributable to old-fashioned public health interventions, including provision of clean water and uncontaminated food, sanitation, and improved housing standards. And that brings me to three studies which grapple with the important question, do childhood vaccines help or hinder the attempt to reduce infant mortality? Reading and dissecting these studies is an object lesson in how science should and should not be conducted. And the types of statistical sleights of hand that researchers can use to torture the data until it confesses, even to crimes that were never committed. These studies essentially constitute a debate between two teams of researchers, one calling vaccine orthodoxy into question and the other staunchly defending it. Let's step through these in the order in which they were written. Study number one, infant mortality rates regressed against number of vaccine doses routinely given, is there a biochemical or synergistic toxicity? This study, published in the journal Human and Experimental Toxicology in 2011, was co-authored by Neil Miller and Gary Goldman. You might remember Goldman from my previous article, Backlash, How the Vaccine Pushers Turned True Believers into Vaccine Skeptics, Part 2. In 2002, he quit his job as a research analyst when his employer, the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services, refused to publish his discovery that their paediatric chickenpox vaccination campaign was associated with a dramatic increase in the incidence of shingles in both children and adults. This agency then collaborated with the CDC in a lengthy harassment campaign to try to prevent Goldman from publishing his findings independently. Rather than being intimidated into silence, Goldman's bruising experience prompted him to become curious about the safety and efficacy of vaccines in general. In collaboration with Miller, Goldman conducted a linear regression analysis on the relationship between infant mortality rates in 34 highly developed countries and the number of vaccine doses on the immunization schedules in those countries. Infant mortality rate, or IMR, is the number of deaths of children under one year of age per 1,000 live births. Linear regression is a statistical technique used for modelling the relationship between two factors known as variables. In simple terms, it's the first step that needs to be taken in the process of ascertaining whether a correlation between two variables is due to causation rather than coincidence. The 34 countries selected for this analysis were the U.S., which, at 26 vaccine doses for infants aged less than one year as of 2011, has both the most intense vaccination schedule and the highest per capita spend on health care in the world, and the 33 countries that have a lower infant mortality rate than the jab to the eyeballs leader of the free world. Importantly, most of the nations included in this study had coverage rates in the 90-99% to 99% range for the most commonly recommended vaccines, DTaP, polio, hepatitis B and HIV, when these vaccines were included in the schedule, minimising the impact of any potential confounding effect of variability in coverage rates. Remember this, its importance will become evident when we discuss study number two. In the post accompanying this podcast episode, you'll see a table of the 34 countries with the lowest infant mortality rates in the world as of 2009. Singapore comes in at number one, that is the lowest infant mortality rate in the world, followed by Sweden, Japan, Iceland, France, Finland. At position 33, we have Cuba, and finally at position 34, we have the United States. By the way, does it strike you as odd that Cuba has a lower infant mortality rate than the wealthy country that has maintained an embargo on it since 1962, crippling its economic development and hindering its access to medical supplies? I've also included in the post accompanying this podcast episode a table showing the number of vaccine doses on each nation's vaccination schedule as of 2008 to 2009 and they're grouped in five ranges. Between 12 and 14 doses, that includes Sweden, Japan, Iceland, Norway, Denmark, and Finland. Between 15 and 17 doses, that's Malta, Slovenia, South Korea, Singapore, New Zealand. Between 18 and 20 doses, that's Germany, Switzerland, Israel, Liechtenstein, Italy, San Marino. France, the Czech Republic, Belgium, the United Kingdom and Spain. Between 21 and 23 doses, that's Portugal, Luxembourg, Cuba, Andorra, Austria, Ireland, Greece and Monaco. And between 24 and 26 doses, that's the Netherlands, Canada, Australia and the United States. After performing an initial exploratory analysis, which indicated that there was indeed a relationship between the number of vaccine doses and infant mortality rate, Goldman and Miller then compared average infant mortality rates between groups of nations whose vaccination schedules specified 12 to 14, 15 to 17, 18 to 20, 21 to 23, and 24 to 26 doses of vaccines before the age of 12 months. They produced a chart, which again, I've reproduced in the poster companies podcast episode, which indicates a statistically significant difference in infant mortality rates between countries that give 12 to 14 vaccine doses and a those giving 21 to 23 doses. They had a 61% higher infant mortality rate than countries giving 12 to 14 and those giving 24 to 26 doses had an 83% higher infant mortality rate than countries that gave 12 to 14 vaccine doses. In the discussion section of their paper, Goldman and Miller point out that many developing nations have extremely high vaccine coverage rates, yet their infant mortality rates continue to be appalling, and they emphasise that no amount of vaccines will compensate for the absence of foundational public health measures. For example, Gambia requires its infants to receive 22 vaccine doses during infancy and has a 91-97% to national vaccine coverage rate, yet its infant mortality rate is 68.8. Mongolia requires 42 vaccine doses during infancy, has a 95 to 98% coverage rate and an infant mortality rate of 39.9. By the way, those compare to Singapore, which has an infant mortality rate of 2.31, Australia, which has an infant mortality rate of 4.75 per thousand live births and the US 622 Back to the Goldman and Miller quote these examples appear to confirm that infant mortality rates will remain high in nations that cannot provide clean water, proper nutrition, improved sanitation and better access to health care. As developing nations improve in all of these areas a critical threshold will eventually be reached where further reductions of the infant mortality rate will be difficult to achieve because most of the susceptible infants that could have been saved from these causes would have been saved. Further reductions of the infant mortality rate must then be achieved in areas outside of these domains. As developing nations ascend to higher socioeconomic living standards, a closer inspection of all factors contributing to infant deaths must be made. End of quote. They go on to discuss the introduction of sudden infant death syndrome to medical nomenclature in 1969, after national immunisation campaigns were initiated in the US in the 1960s and its rapid rise to become the leading cause of post-neonatal mortality by 1980. They speculate that over may impose a toxic burden on infants' health and call for rich nations with high vaccine doses and relatively high infant mortality rates to, quote, take a closer look at their infant death table's to to determine if some fatalities are possibly related to vaccines, though reclassified as other causes, end of quote. The response to this study by academics and policymakers was deafening silence until late in September 2021, when a professor from Brigham Young University, Elizabeth Bailey, and several of her students produced an as-yet-unpublished paper which accused Goldman and Miller of quote, inappropriate data exclusion and other statistical flaws, end quote, which brings us to study number two, infant vaccination does not predict increased infant mortality rate, correcting past misinformation. This paper was first uploaded to the preprint server MedArchive in September 2021. It has since undergone three revisions without yet being accepted for publication in any peer-reviewed journal. It is a sign of the extraordinary times that we live in that in the very title of their paper, the authors denigrate Goldman and Miller's peer-reviewed published study as quote, misinformation, end quote. This is not how scientists behave when they wish to challenge each other's views. But as we shall see, this is not primarily a scientific paper, but a propaganda piece that explicitly aims to reduce the general vaccine hesitancy that, quote, has intensified due to the rapid development and distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine, end quote, by which I presume they mean that the public has finally tweaked to the fact that the inadequately tested, rushed-to-market COVID-19 vaccines are neither safe nor effective, and are wondering whether their asleep-at-the-wheel regulatory agencies have been similarly lax with all the other vaccines. That are pumped into them and their children. Hint, they have been. The authors begin their paper with a stock trope that vaccines are, quote, viewed as one of the greatest public health successes of all time, end quote. As examples of that success, they cite smallpox, poliomyelitis, measles, rubella, tetanus diphtheria, Haemophilus influenza type B, and unspecified others. Yet, the McKinley paper cited in the article that I mentioned previously, concluded that medical measures made little to no impact on deaths from measles, diphtheria, smallpox and poliomyelitis in the 20th century. The CDC acknowledges that tetanus mortality had already markedly decreased before routine vaccination began. Rubella mortality was already negligible before a vaccine was developed, although this usually benign disease can wreak havoc on the developing fetus when contracted during pregnancy and implementation of Haemophilus influenza type B vaccination has resulted in an increase in infections caused by non-vaccine preventable strains and antibiotic-resistant strains of the bacteria. The authors then go on to claim that, quote, addressing vaccine hesitancy by increasing public confidence in vaccine safety has the potential to positively impact public health and save lives, end quote. To reiterate my earlier point, the contention that vaccines have do or will save lives is called into question by the McKinley paper. Further, the net public health impact of vaccination has never been assessed as this would require a comparative longitudinal study of the overall health of vaccinated versus unvaccinated groups within the same population and the CDC admits that it has not conducted such a study nor does it hold any record of such a study. Finally, the authors get down to the real purpose of the paper, discrediting Goldman and Miller's study. They seem to be particularly bothered that, quote, This manuscript is in the top 5% of all research output since its publication, being shared extensively on social media, with tens of thousands of likes and reshares, end quote. Just speculating, perhaps this particularly irks them, since they can't even manage to get their own paper published in a peer-reviewed journal after nearly a year and a half, let alone share it widely. Their chief criticism is that Goldman and Miller cherry-picked data, selecting only 34 countries out of a data set that included 185 countries. In addition, they accused Goldman and Miller of relying on vaccine schedules rather than data on actual vaccine doses administered. They conclude that the chief determinant of infant mortality rate is actually the Human Development Index, and that, in complete contradiction to Goldman and Miller's conclusions, quote, fewer vaccine doses in the schedule were predictive of higher infant mortality rate, end quote. How did Goldman and Miller respond to this critique of their paper? Let's turn to study number three, reaffirming a positive correlation between number of vaccine doses and infant mortality rates, a response to critics published in the peer-reviewed journal Cureus on the 2nd of February 2023. This paper examines the claims made in study number two and reanalyzes the data from the original study published in 2011. As always, I urge you to read the paper, which I've linked in the post accompanying this podcast episode, and of course the other two that I referenced previously for yourself. But here's my quick and dirty summary. Number one, indiscriminately combining developing and developed nations with varying rates of vaccination and vast socioeconomic disparities, as the critics did for their reanalysis, introduces multiple confounding variables that were not present in the original analysis, which was confined to economically developed countries. It is not appropriate to group together for analysis countries as socioeconomically disparate as Belgium, which has an infant mortality rate of 4.44, and Angola, with an infant mortality rate of 100 180.21, just because they both specify 22 vaccine doses in the first year of life. Likewise, it is not appropriate to group CHAD, which has a coverage rate of 10% for three doses of the hepatitis B vaccine, with economically developed countries that have greater than 90% coverage and to not adjust for confounding. Secondly, despite these confounding variables, there was still a small but statistically significant correlation between total vaccine doses and infant mortality rates in the reanalysis, with an R or correlation coefficient of 0.16 for the data set of 185 countries, compared to an R of 0.7 for the 30 countries with the lowest infant mortality rates. And by the way, for those unfamiliar with statistics, R, or Pearson's coefficient, represents the strength of association between two variables. In this case, it's the number of vaccine doses and the infant mortality rate. The value of R is always between plus 1 and minus 1. The closer to plus 1 R is, the stronger the positive association between the variables. So an R of 0.7 is actually a very strong association. Point number three, the critics claim that the Human Development Index, rather than the number of vaccine doses, predicts the infant mortality rate is not justified because of a number of well-known errors of misclassification in the Human Development Index. Number four, there are significant flaws in the critics' linear regression analysis of infant mortality rate as a function of percentage vaccination rates, which essentially invalidate their findings. Five, the critics failed to count doses of vaccines accurately for several countries, largely because they relied on UNICEF data rather than cross-checking with each country's published vaccination schedule. In the case of Indonesia, this resulted in the critics counting just seven vaccine doses, while the true number of doses administered is 18. They also reported only seven infant vaccine doses for Australia, when the true value is 24. Number six, the critics excluded six countries from their analysis without explanation and included five countries that should have been excluded because they have so few births that their infant mortality rate is unstable. Number seven, Goldman and Miller invited an independent statistician to conduct an odds ratio analysis on the original data set, controlling for 11 different variables, including low birth weight, child poverty and breastfeeding, which confirmed their original findings of a strong correlation between vaccine doses and infant mortality rate Number eight, there were still statistically significant correlations between number of vaccine doses and infant mortality rate when they expanded their original analysis from the top 30 to the 46 nations with the best infant mortality rates. After this point, there is too much heterogeneity between the socioeconomic conditions of nations for a consistent relationship between vaccine doses and infant mortality rate to be apparent. And finally, replicating their original 2011 study using updated 2019 data, corroborating to the trend they found in the first paper, namely that the more vaccine doses, the higher the infant mortality rate. Goldman and Miller summarized their response to the critics in a very concise table, which I've reproduced in the post this podcast episode. But it gets even worse. In the supplementary material for the paper, Goldman and Miller reveal that in earlier versions of the critics' paper, the authors made several libelous statements that were so egregious that, quote, an attorney contacted a faculty chairman to inform the Bailey team that their article sets a poor example to students that libel is acceptable and suggested that they remove their malicious and false statements prior to going forward with publication. Although this language was adjusted in later versions, it served to reveal author bias and demonstrated a misunderstanding and misuse of basic scientific methodologies, quote. The original version of the paper also made false claims about the funding source for Goldman and Miller's paper, and despite claiming that they used an identical data set for infant mortality rates as that which was used in study number one, they in fact used a different data set received from an alternate resource containing less recent infant mortality rate data. As one example, quote, the infant mortality rate for Sierra Leone in the CIA data set that we used is 81.86, but the Bailey team has it listed as 154.43 and used this figure in their analyses. But yeah, apart from all that, it was quality work. Goldman and Miller go on to discuss the biological plausibility of an association between infant vaccination and sudden infant death, citing firstly the abrupt disappearance of the category sudden infant death in Japan when Japanese authorities raised the age of pertussis or whooping cough vaccination from three months to two years. Secondly, a 1987 study which found that infants died at a rate more than seven times greater than expected in a period from zero to three days following DTP vaccination than compared to the period beginning 30 days post-vaccination. Thirdly, a 2021 analysis by Miller, a Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, or VAERS data, which found that 58% of the 2,605 infant deaths reported to VAERS between 1990 and 2019, occurred within three days post-vaccination, and 78% occurred within seven days post-vaccination. And finally, compensation has been paid to parents of children who died after receiving vaccines, with acknowledgement that vaccines drive the production of cytokines, which can interfere with the brain's ability to regulate breathing, resulting in the abrupt cessation of breathing that characterises sudden infant death syndrome. They concluded that, quote, a positive correlation between the number of vaccine doses and infant mortality rates is detectable in the most highly developed nations, but attenuated in the background noise of nations with heterogeneous socioeconomic variables that contribute to high rates of, of infant mortality, such as malnutrition, poverty, and substandard healthcare, end quote. So, why does all this matter? The significance of this tale of three papers goes way beyond a somewhat entertaining spat between two teams of data nerds. Cop this regression analysis, straight in your ghoulies, right back at you with a devastating odds ratio analysis to your solar plexus. The salient difference between Goldman and Miller and Elizabeth Bailey and her co-authors is that the former are independent researchers, while the latter are attached to an educational institution. As evolutionary biologists Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein frequently point out in their Dark Horse podcast, universities have been entirely captured by an entity that might be described as the medical, academic, pharmaceutical-industrial complex. Their apparatchiks, like Elizabeth Bailey, perform something that has the cosmetic appearance of science but is definitively not science in the sense of conforming to the scientific method and the attitude of radical scepticism that underpins it. If you recall Gary Goldman's story, which I recounted in Backlash, How the Vaccine Pushes Turned True Believers into Vaccine Skeptics, Part 2, he took a job as a research analyst with the LA County Health Department, having never questioned the safety or effectiveness of vaccines. However, when the data that he was analysing indicated that chickenpox vaccination was leading to significant harm in the form of increased incidence of shingles, Goldman followed these data where they led, even though this meant revising his entire belief system not to mention losing his job and suffering significant harassment by his former employer. The lesson of the last three years of covidiacy has been that only a tiny minority of scientists display this level of integrity and commitment to uncovering the truth and disseminating it to the public, and when they do, they are vehemently opposed by the majority who have, through some strange quirk of human psychology, assumed the interests of the medical-academic-pharmaceutical-industrial complex as their own. Substacker Elgato Milo, the bad cat, frequently writes of the politicization of science and the need to open data to public scrutiny and to crowdsource its analysis through a genuine peer review system. And I've linked to two of the bad cats articles in the post accompanying this podcast episode. I thoroughly encourage you to read them. This is the way of the future. Open the books, free the data, question everything. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.